Welcome, everybody, to episode 51 of Generation Jihad. We are finally over the 50-episode mark. Woohoo! Hey, Bill. Yes, it's time. So we're on to episode 51, and I'm, of course, Tom Jocelyn. I'm here with Bill Rocha. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. We've been running FTD's Long Word Journal for many years now. And we're pleased again this week to have a guest uh, to share with you who can talk about uh, some of the work he, that he and his colleagues are performing these days. He is Edmund Fitton Brown. He has a long career working for the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office. He was Her Majesty's Ambassador to the Republic of Yemen from February 2015 until February 2017. And he's currently the coordinator for the UN Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team, which covers ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and the Taliban. And as longtime readers of the Long Word Journal know, we always dive into the reports that Edmund and his team file. So we're always happy to have him on to talk about them. Edmund, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Tom. Great to be on. So I guess let's get right into it. Um, again, in the previous episode of the podcast, you kind of explained what you and your team, how you, how you do your work, how you go about perform, you know, uh, authoring these reports. You have a new report out on Afghanistan. Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS in Afghanistan has a lot of interesting nuggets in it, which we're going to dive into. But maybe just give listeners a brief overview of how you guys do what you do. Absolutely. Uh, Happy to do so, Tom. So the monitoring team has essentially two functions. One is that it supports, uh, provides technical support to the UN committees that uh, are responsible for the sanctions on Al-Qaeda, ISIL, and the Taliban. And secondly, we, uh, we write the threat assessment, both the threat assessment from ISIL and Al-Qaeda, um, and also uh, the, uh, the threat assessment uh, in terms of what threat the Taliban poses to peace and security in Afghanistan. And our methodology is uh, essentially that we, uh, we talk to member states, uh, counterterrorism and other relevant agencies, uh, including intelligence services, um, and uh, we do not uh, we do not relay uh, reporting from uh, uh, from non-state actors. We don't run sources, so uh, the reports that we write are all essentially based on member state reporting. Uh, in the case of this particular report that we're looking at today, um, we also uh, we also uh, have a lot of assistance from uh, from the UN uh, presence inside Afghanistan, uh, UNAMA, but uh, we are the ones who make all of the uh, editorial judgments. No, that's great. And that's that's the main reason why Bill and I have focused in on your reporting through the years is because we can get a sense of what member states are saying, uh, you know, in, in terms of relaying intelligence and their perceptions of things. The previous episode of this podcast, episode 50, uh, was a, a typically nerdy uh, issue of our podcast or edition of our podcast, in which I discussed, we discussed at length the analytical problems that, that still sort of besiege the community, the characters of community in terms of understanding how Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban, and affiliated groups are structured, how they're organized, and how they work. And so we always pick through your reports to see what member states are saying to that in, along those lines, the little nuggets that are there. Um, but let's start with the big picture here before we get into some of those little nuggets. The first thing is, you know, you, you do paint a very grim picture of what the Taliban is doing in Afghanistan currently in terms of war fighting. Um, that picture is entirely consistent with the work that Bill's been doing for years at the Long War Journal. Uh, that's something that he noticed right away. And maybe you could talk a little bit about your assessment of in the, from the report of what's going on currently in Afghanistan. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I think, I mean, you, you call it a grim picture. I suppose, I suppose the one thing I would say is I think it's a consistent picture. I think it's, uh, I think it's consistent with what we've reported in the past. Yep. Um, we write these reports on Afghanistan uh, once a year. 
and um, I, would, I would characterize the picture um, that we've painted in this latest report as being uh, an evolution um, consistent with what we reported uh, a year earlier and before that. Um, the main, yes, I mean, I think the, going to, to your point specifically on, on, on how the Taliban is acting, um, yeah, they are not showing, they're not behaving in the manner of a, an organization that uh, has a strong commitment to uh, compromise or reconciliation or peace. Um, they've continued uh, to, uh, to uh, raise the levels of violence uh, in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, considering, that, considering that, the, that there is a, you know, a, an understanding that is being implemented, uh, the, the Doha Accord from the end of February uh, 2020, um, which has seen prisoner releases um, and has seen um, the uh, agreement to, uh, to uh, withdraw the foreign troops uh, from Afghanistan. Um, it is striking to me that, uh, that, the, that the Taliban do not appear to have done anything very much uh, that they could not easily reverse or to have made any really substantive compromises. Billy, you had a question? Yes, Edmund. Um, yeah, so you, uh, I, I noted in here that uh, you, you discuss, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just quote it directly. It says, uh, according to member states, the Taliban now contest or control an estimated 50 to 70% of Afghan territory outside of urban centers while exerting, also exerting direct control over 57% of district administ administrative centers, uh, end quote there. So, um, you know, one of the things I do at Longwood Journal is I and I started this in 2014 is to track how the the security in the districts right um, the what the Taliban controls what they contest what the Afghan government controls and to be perfectly clear it's a very difficult process um, using news sources some, when the um, U.S. military was providing that information the SIGAR uh, what Taliban claims what gov government officials are saying. So, um, you know, and now obviously we're not talking an apples to apples situation here. You guys mentioned territory uh, outside urban centers and I'm discussing specific districts. So can you tell me a little bit about the where um, how is that determined that that percentage? Are they just coming Are the member states just giving you a rough estimate or is there, you know, where, where does I mean, I guess the most curious, where does that 50 percent of district? centers under Taliban control. How is, how is that determined? Can, if you can provide information on that, I understand a lot of this may be sensitive, Edmund. Uh, so, Bill, it's, um, it's really, uh, uh, what we do is we take the member state information and we, we sort of triangulate it and produce the best, um, the best sort of uh, analysis that we can from what we're being told. Um, and uh, we, obviously we don't talk about which member states, but, you know, sure. we're obviously talking to a wide range of uh, of people and you could no doubt guess some of them. Um, what we're looking at here is not so much uh, being given a list of every single district in Afghanistan and this one is and that one isn't. Um, it's more uh, an estimate that we've been given by several member states where this is the sort of the, this is a, this is a reasonable representation of the sort of the average of what we're being told. Um, and uh, importantly, I think, uh, it's more to do with trends. It's the fact that the, you know, I often feel, I often feel this with the numbers that we cite, that it's a question of what, in what direction is the situation moving? Are more 
are the Taliban controlling and contesting more ground than they were, to which the answer is yes, um, rather than, you know, sort of any, any sort of magical significance to the figures themselves. Um, and um, there's also another key point here, which is, uh, and this is consistent with the Taliban's sort of uh, military approach of the last couple of years, which is that they haven't sought to, they've put more emphasis on contesting ground than they have on controlling ground. And I think that's because, you know, they recognize that um, controlling ground or massing forces in order to take high profile targets um, made them vulnerable to counterattack. And that's counterattack, uh, which of course, you know, they were very, would be very concerned about the counterattack from uh, uh, not just the uh, Afghan forces, but the Afghan forces, um, international allies. Um, even so, um, the fact is that uh, the fact is that even without um, international support, uh, the Afghan forces are uh, stronger than they used to be, and they have significant capabilities. And therefore, from the Taliban's point of view, that tactic may still be relevant. But they're, essentially what they're trying to do is to contest ground, to demonstrate to the Afghan people that the, uh, that the government cannot give them security, cannot provide them with services, cannot even hold its uh, current position in the country. It's that kind. It's that kind of uh, attempt to uh, to uh, break down uh, any uh, any uh, confidence in the government, rather than uh, full frontal assaults and uh, and attempts to uh, occupy large tracts of ground or major cities. Yeah, Edmund, that, thank you for that answer, and I, I think you really hit on what I was hoping to hear. And that, and I, so I describe the work that I do. Look, and I. I you know, I, I'm tracking this daily, right? I'm trying to understand what's happening. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, my map is a picture. And I kind of look at it, it's sort of like a Monet. Well, it's a, probably a lot worse picture. <laughs> it's, it's not that great. Re- re- reality check. <laughs> reality check, though. It's not that great. Okay, so, the <laughs> style of painting like a Monet, where you're putting the dots down and you draw back and you see a face, right? That's, that. you know, those individuals change a couple of pixels a day or two. So, for instance, your report is as of April, right? The Taliban's overrun 11 districts since then of much, much more gone contested. But the but the picture that you're painting there, 50 to 70 percent of Afghan outside of uh, government control, you know, that that's what we the same thing that I'm trying to do with that map. So it's that's why I was curious as to why. How do you come to this assessment and what does and actually more importantly, of course, what does it actually mean? And and that is correct. And I do concur with your assessment. The Taliban, particularly foreign air power, has uh, shown to been very effective at preventing the Taliban from massing in strength. But I think what we're seeing now is the Taliban's realizing that Afghan air power isn't quite as good as the Taliban or as the uh, American air power. And that's why they're able to make some some gains over the last several weeks. Yeah, and just to add to that too, one of our longstanding assessments has been that they were doing exactly what you described, Emin, in terms of surrounding these provincial capitals, much like you know tying a noose that they were eventually going to tighten. Uh, and they waited for the U.S. and NATO forces to withdraw or start withdrawing to then try and take and hold these provincial capitals, and they weren't going to expand the manpower to do so until special operations forces and air power of the Americans and our allies were out of country because at that point in time they could so at that point in time they could probably take and hold start taking and holding provincial capital so entirely consistent with what you're saying uh, in terms of all this um, let's move on to uh, real quick here's one of the of course the long-standing things that we've talked about too uh, your in your report you guys conclude that the Taliban and al-qaeda remain closely aligned and show no indication of breaking ties 
and that the UN's member states report no material change to this relationship, which has grown deeper as a consequence of personal bonds of marriage and shared partnership and struggle, now cemented through second generational ties. So as I read that, I guess that you guys have come to the same conclusion that we have, that there's no indication of a real, any kind of real break between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and there's a lot of indications that the two remain intertwined. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, that's 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 very much our assessment. Um, I, it's important to highlight the one sort of change that we did note, and which is in the report, which is this point about uh, the Taliban seeking to uh, develop more information and control uh, regarding the presence of foreign elements, foreign fighters um, in Afghanistan. Um, but I don't want to overstate that because uh, apart from anything else, uh, of course, you know, gaining information and more control uh, doesn't of itself mean very much. It, 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 suggests, it suggests to me that the Taliban wants to have uh, greater assurance that it's not going to be embarrassed or wrong-footed by something that, uh, uh, that foreign elements might do in Afghanistan. Um, but, uh, you know, it could, also, it could also be something that the Taliban is, uh, wants to have that ability to curb those elements uh, if things change in such a way that it suits them to do so. Um, so I think it's worth noting it. Uh, but as I said, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's, something, it's something that is not of itself a concession by the Taliban, nor is it something that the Taliban uh, could not discontinue or reverse if they chose to do so. What that leaves you with is the continuing close relationship between the two organizations. Uh, and uh, of course, we, what we've seen and we've recorded in the report is a series of high profile cases of uh, senior Al-Qaeda members being killed uh, in Afghanistan and uh, in each case uh, co-located uh, with the Taliban and no suggestion there, you know, again, sort of the evidence from that uh, is that uh, the Taliban are continuing to uh, give these people shelter. Edmund, if I could follow up, uh, you, so you had noted a, a document in there that, uh, the, the Pashtu document that began cir circulating social media, that the that uh, apparently, the, uh, that purportedly said that the Taliban banned all foreign, foreign fighters, but then you go on to to note that there's some suspicion about that can you can you discuss that briefly um i think i think it's just that it's just that there was there was some communications by the taliban that seemed to be almost aimed for a foreign audience you know there was a you know a feeling a feeling that uh, some of the things that were being said uh were effectively seeking to give a sort of pr pr support to uh, uh to the idea that they were um uh, they were honoring their part of the uh, of the bargain um, that said, I don't want to call into question the idea that they were seeking that information and seeking to register these elements because I think I believe I believe that they were. Yeah, I've heard an additional theory on that too, Evan. I wonder if you've heard it as well, which is that um, the Taliban is prepared under the newly reconstituted Islamic Emirate to provide refugee status, in effect, to a number of the foreign fighters or foreign elements who are not of necessarily Afghan nationality. Um, and that may be one way they also spin such a list, but just obviously it's just conjecture. It's not really known for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's plausible conjecture. I, 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 yeah. I could, I, I couldn't, I couldn't really, uh, really add to that. Gotcha. Um, now being a nerd as I am, I read the footnotes 
Uh, I always read the footnotes because I think the footnotes oftentimes have very interesting little things in it that authors say uh, that catch that catch your eye if you're, if you're deeply immersed in this stuff as we all are. And there's one footnote that talked about uh, Sir Jude Nakani, um, and the footnote noted that in addition to his roles as being a Taliban leader, um, that that he's also assessed to be a member of the wider Al Qaeda leadership, but not of the Al Qaeda core leadership. And then in parentheses says the Teen Shura. Now this is a very interesting little remark in a footnote here. I was saying, and I don't I don't know if you can elaborate at all on this. I suspect you can't, but I just wanted to raise it because this raises some really interesting questions about the current structure of Al Qaeda and who's who and how some of these figures fit into it. I was wondering if you had anything else you could add or elaborate on that. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not much I can add, Tom. And the, re- the reason is goes back to the methodology that we discussed at the beginning, which is what we're, we're essentially reliant on member state information. Um, and uh, sometimes when you get a piece of information like that, it's it, it's it's so interesting that you want you, you feel that you must include it because it feel it, it, it feels it feels plausible and it also feels like a significant thing to mention. Uh, but because because it was uh, from one member state. And, we left it in a footnote rather than uh, rather than sort of giving it a you know, paragraph of its own because we couldn't really have fleshed it out in a way that would have been particularly helpful to readers. So yeah, it's more of a it's more of a little note. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, Sirajuddin's association with Al Qaeda is very well known, and there's no exactly. uh, there's no no real issue over that. Right. Um, but we were struck we were struck by that particular the way that, that particular information was phrased and decided to include it in the report. So on that point, what you just said is exactly what I've been saying to everybody when I read that. I mean, you know, I, Bill and I could easily produce an encyclopedia of information detailing the Akani's role with Al-Qaeda since the 1980s. And Siraj's role in particular, you can point to all sorts of evidence on that as well, including from Bin Laden's files and other things. But it was a type of organizational detail that if true, if true, it's interesting because it tells you something about that Al-Qaeda is how its structure is currently constituted. Um, now, the other part, by the way, I've also been snooping around, as you probably could tell by my write-up at FDU's Long War Journal, to find out more about this from people, and have, have found some other conjecture about it or some other suspicions about it. Um, it's possible, based on the sources I've talked to, that he actually holds a seat on one or more of the other Shura councils within Al-Qaeda, is the way it's been phrased to me, uh, which Bill reported many years ago that, in fact, uh, Siraj... Uh, Sir Juden Hakani actually held a seat on the Al-Qaeda Shura Council at one point, but that was long ago. So we're trying to figure out where he sits now. But now let us let me ask you a question on the latter um, half of that footnote as well, because you mentioned the Teen Shura, which is something I was very excited about this because Bill knows I've been hearing about the Teen Shura for a while, but we haven't. Um, it's the first time we've seen an official document actually discuss it in any way or even mention it. And the Teen Shura, as far as I can tell, based on the sources I've talked to within Al-Qaeda, is basically, and I don't know if you guys are doing any work on this, um, but is basically like the supreme body within Al-Qaeda currently. It's basically the major decision-making body. And I don't know if what you've heard about the Teen Shura can share with us. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, first, first of all, I should say that I have to be a little bit um, cautious on this point because we're likely to cover this in some detail in our next report. I hope um, so. <laughs> so, uh, so. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that still has to go through the process you know again our processes are uh, not just that we gather information but that we also have this uh, the group of us then uh, take collective editorial responsibility for what is published uh, and so not having gone through that process yet um, I don't want to lean too far forward on this issue but yes uh, it's it 
undoubtedly it's an important leadership body. Um, and um, I, I think uh, what we can say of Al Qaeda is that they they have a um, they have a sort of a dispersed leadership model uh, of necessity, really. Um, they've uh, always been willing to acknowledge people who are uh, uh, who are uh, uh, key leaders, uh, even though they're not necessarily co-located uh, with one another. Um, and so uh, and so there's a, there's a complexity about the uh, Al Qaeda leadership. Um, on the specifically on the the team committee or their team uh, shura, um, it is something that member states are uh, aware of and that they uh, they talk about. But it, as you say, it remains it remains it remains a subject that is not particularly uh, well understood, um, particularly not in, in particularly particularly not uh, um, uh, widely understood. No, and that's uh, that's a key theme of our podcast is trying to explore these issues in greater detail. So I really appreciate your candor in terms of explaining how you're thinking through this stuff carefully to try and do the analysis, figure it out. And we're we're definitely looking forward to your next report on this because I think you mentioned in the previous episode of the podcast that you were working on trying to tease out some of the details on the structure of Al Qaeda, and that's a that's a a big lift, not a small lift, I would say, because there's a lot that's unknown and not publicly understood. So we appreciate that effort. And, and of course, you know, as we as we mentioned in this report as well, um, it's particularly uh, timely to look at because of the probable compromised state of health, uh, or worse, uh, of uh, of the leader Ayman Azawahiri. Um, so, in a circum in circumstances where Al Qaeda uh, must be grappling with a succession issue, uh, it becomes particularly uh, timely and important to understand the uh, the way that their uh, the way that their leadership works. Now, Bill, you had noticed some language in the report too, the most recent report from Edmund Fitton Brown and his team uh, for the UN Security Council about the foreign fighters in Afghanistan. I was wondering if you had some questions on that. Yeah, it, Edmund, it's more of a, a general question. So, you know, in the foreign fighters section, you have you know you list several groups. Obviously, one of the largest being the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. Um, you mentioned the Islamic movement in Uzbekistan, Turkestan Islamic Party. Now, some of these groups, um, for instance, the Turkestan Islamic Party, um, its leader is also essentially an Al-Qaeda member. He's led Al-Qaeda's, uh, at least the reporting that we've seen, he's led Al-Qaeda's. Um, uh, he's been uh, on Al-Qaeda Shura Council. Yeah, been on Al-Qaeda Shura Council, led their military yeah. formations in the Afghan-Pakistan border area. So while they are... Um, he was also, by the way, on the ledger of the monthly accounting, uh, some of the yes. ledgers on Osama Bin Laden's <laughs> compound. He's, he was getting a monthly stipend, according to those ledgers, from Bin Laden himself personally, which is his his personal bankroll, which is interesting, talking about Abdul Haq al Turkestani. Okay, go ahead, Bill. Sorry. Yeah, yeah so my, I guess my general question is, is, well, yes, these would be foreign fighters outside of, you know, of, you sort of list them separately from Al-Qaeda, whereas I guess Tom and I would, would view them as just being part of Al-Qaeda's network. Um, essentially local Al-Qaeda affiliates that are organized on often on ethnic or regional grounds. Would you agree or disagree with that assessment? I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I wouldn't sort of strongly disagree, Bill. I think it's, I think it's a, more a question of emphasis. Um, I remember us having this conversation once before where you, you gave a very, very persuasive analysis of the uh, size of Al-Qaeda uh, in Afghanistan, and, and, and you know, your, 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 the figure you would have given for it was was considerably higher than the one that we've given in the report. Now, uh, I don't. It's not that I disagree with that. It's more that we seek to separate out uh, these different elements uh, within 
the sort of extremist milieu in uh, Afghanistan. So we, we refer to Al-Qaeda senior leadership, which I think is a fairly clear cut sort of concept. We also refer to Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, which again, I think is a reasonably clear cut concept. And uh, of course, you know, on slightly different part of the spectrum, we talk about ISIL Khorasan, and we also talk uh, plenty about the Taliban. But then you have all of this other sort of spectrum of extremists as you as you referred to it you know particularly this uh, extremely large contingent of ttp and i think what's interesting about that for us is that some of these groups we see as being um yeah al-qaeda aligned i mean i completely take your point about uh, about uh, Turkestani. um some of them we would sort of characterize as being very specifically taliban aligned but you know how different are those two concepts when we say that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are also aligned with each other? You know, so in a sense, you know, this, this, we're, not, we're talking about things that are not, not that different in the shade of meaning. But the reason I think it's important to single these groups out and to look at their individual objectives, you know, whether they're Uzbek groups or uh, other, other sort of Central or, or, or East Asian groups or, or, or whether, they're, whether they're Pakistani groups or, or all of the different shades that you have there, it's because of it's because of this dynamic with the uh, with uh, the peace process and with ISIL Khorasan, and the fact that ISIL Khorasan is clearly uh, its plan is to draw to it people who are, who don't want to be part of whatever it is the Taliban is doing uh, in Afghanistan, and particularly if it's a you know if it's a real peace process process with compromise being made and. Uh, uh, and, and therefore doesn't sort of fit the kind of the, the, the idea of most of these guys of what the future should be, then you know, ISIL is poised to try to recruit these people and bring them on board. And this is the, the sort of the short to medium threat that we refer to from ISIL, that although its numbers are down and it's suffered a lot of military setbacks, we still see it as very dangerous and we see it as potentially very attractive to anyone who gets disillusioned with the process going forward. Now, I, I'm the final part of my answer to your question is that I think we also have to reflect on the fact that some people uh, actually have loyalties that either float or are, um, are not sincerely expressed. And definitely when you think back to the uh, event in Jaozjan in 2018, where you had that, uh, you had that uh, Uzbek Taliban group uh, who uh, defected to ISIL. And then, uh, sorry, you know, they'd already defected and then they were put down in, uh, in summer 2018, uh, partly by action by the government and its allies and partly by Taliban action. And I, I think what you, what you have operating here is a certain amount of Taliban intimidation and coercion. You know, the Taliban, the Taliban does not like being crossed. And the message uh, from, that, uh, from, from the, from the uh, rough handling of that cell in uh, Jaozjan was, you don't get to leave the Taliban. You don't get to break with us. You don't get to defy us. Uh, you don't get to contest our space or contest our resources. And so we try to make sure that we refer to these groups as by their individual uh, identities, whilst acknowledging that they're aligned with the, with the Taliban or aligned with Al Qaeda or with both, um, but also allowing for the possibility that some of them, some members of the groups may entertain ISIL sympathies and some may even end up breaking away and joining ISIL. Yeah, and to your point, Edmund, that group in Jawstown, that was the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, and it was upset over the Taliban playing Weekend at Bernie's with uh, Mullah Omar and propping him up 
a dead guy and pretending he was alive. Um, so that, you know, so that is something, that, and, and I agree with you. It, it is important to understand who the groups are individually. And I just, you know, I, and, and, and I think you do a fantastic job of this, by the way, in the report, this is more of a question for the audience than myself, because I know your answer, you answered two other questions within there. Um, and I guess one of uh, that I would have, would have had, um, one other question I do have for you is that you note at the very top of this, the Taliban persistently denies that any foreign fighters are inside Afghanistan. And here you go. You document, you know, 10,000 just that are not specifically, you know, defined as Al Qaeda, you know, explicit Al Qaeda um, here. And then whatever the estimate is, is you know, obviously the Taliban's not going to take credit for, for the Islamic State, its enemy. Um, so I, I just find that very interesting. And it's just, more evidence that, uh, you know, every, I got tired at one point in time writing up when the Taliban would deny, you know, ever having foreign fighters in the country or in its ranks or, or allied with it. And, you know, this report does just does a fantastic job of debunking that. Well, and we have to keep restating it, Bill, don't we? Because, because in the end, the Taliban are claiming to want to be taken seriously as yeah. a responsible party in Afghanistan and a future, a future party of, of government in Afghanistan. And that means that they need to be able to uh, hold uh, uh, credible discussions with, uh, with both with other Afghans and with international partners. And if they're going to do that, they, they need to stop telling things that we you know, that, are, that are obviously untrue. Yeah. And, you know, look, and I'm not going to draw you into a policy debate here. That's not your place. I understand that reason that Tom and I have we don't object to negotiating with the Taliban if it can if you can do so on fair terms, if there were. Um, if there were, you know, defined goals and, and and enforcement mechanisms, but when the Taliban just outright lies about how many foreign fighters are in country, they put that number at zero, and we, you know, any rational person knows the number is greater than ten thousand. You know, there's a big chasm there to fill. As a matter of fact, you can't fill that chasm. You know, someone's lying here, and we know it's not you. Well, and of course, it comes straight back to counterterrorism as well, doesn't it? And and, and the, the whole point is is here that. Uh, uh, is the Taliban uh, potentially a credible right. partner for counterterrorism? Uh, they need to they need to speak honestly about what the problem is inside Afghanistan. In that case, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, this is it's all you know. The, we just you know, I, I get so frustrated on this issue. I'm even at a lack of words here. But we, it's it's easy to see this. this these problems aren't very difficult to get to the bottom um, to and. And yet we signed a deal, the U.S. signed a deal with the Taliban and, and people are still talking as the Taliban's carrying out, you know, a massive amount of violence, which you excellently document in this report. And it's taking over a territory and whatnot and how people could still talk about peace at this point in time. You know, the Taliban's talking about war. The Taliban's conducting war. It's not just talking about it. It's doing it. And um, yeah, that's where, you know, you can't negotiate with a, a partner that isn't credible, that isn't honest. So, uh, you know, we mentioned ISIS. Let's move on to what the report says about the ISIS-Khorasan branch, because there's some interesting details um, in the report along those lines as well. Um, and something I've been wanting to do more on, and I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on this, Edmund. So you guys talk about um, the leader of ISIS-Khorasan, Shahab al-Muhajir, and describe him as an ambitious new leader. Those are your, your words. And then there was a very interesting point here where you you explain that according to the information you guys have received from the member states, that he's coordinating his operation with an ISIS office known as al-Sadiq, and that that office oversees the uh, 
so-called caliphate's operations throughout all of Central and South Asia. And I think you guys listed, it includes Afghanistan, Bangladesh, India, Maldives, Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, and the Central Asian republics. It's a very interesting couple passages there along those lines. I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit, because again, you know, we talk about how the organizational structure of Al-Qaeda is not well understood. And here's a point on the ISIS side to try and understand how they're currently constituted. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I'm glad you highlighted this one because it is it's sort of emerging information, really. Um, we also refer, you may, we don't usually refer to other uh, arenas in our Afghan report, but we did just name check Somalia um, simply because we see this as, uh, we understand from member states that this is part of a, an emerging um, ISIL uh, regional structure um, related, to its, uh, related to its directorate of provinces. Um, and that this is, you know, because this goes back to the defeat in, uh, in Iraq and then Syria and ISIL having to try to uh, uh, structure itself globally in such a way that it would be able to withstand the shock of, of, of that defeat. And the concept then was to have these uh, regional groupings uh, where you would have effectively hubs and spokes um, around the world. And, you know, you would put your regional coordination office wherever your most secure hub was. And uh, and that would then uh, that would then take care of the need for uh, for ISIL presences to support each other and uh, to promote future interoperability and ultimately for that to fuel uh, future global capability. And of course, we've talked uh, previously about the fact that ISIL had to fold its uh, external operations capability. But of course, this is another vehicle potentially for regenerating that external operations capability if you have these. Uh, relatively well uh, formed regional structures, and you're then able to uh, to to, uh, to to bed those down and to generate the resource and the ambition and the communications that would enable that to project an external threat. So that's the, that's the significance of this. It's why we why we dwell on it a little bit. Why we also refer to the fact that there's a parallel structure that's discernible in East and Central Africa. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we we noted that. Um, we noted that uh, these are two separate individuals, uh, Shahab al-Mahajah, who is the head of ISIL Khorasan, uh, and uh, and and the and then the separate uh, uh, head of the uh, of the uh, al-Sadiq office, and that they're co-located effectively. I mean, as in as in the al-Sadiq office is is also located uh, uh, with ISIL Khorasan, um, and that also that although their two mandates are ostensibly um, somewhat contradictory, because if you're struggling and you're under military pressure uh, to uh, maintain your activities in Afghanistan, um, then you know, uh, how easily can you spare the bandwidth to try to play a coordinating role and take the risk of communicating outside Afghanistan? Um, that just struck me as an interesting question, but the answer that we've had from member states up to now is that there's no sign of any tension between those missions and that, that, that those missions are uh, are, are functioning together uh, without uh, without friction. Now, is it your sense too that this that's uh, it obviously your sense too? But I just want to clarify: is this something post Baghdadi and post uh, the fall of the Caliphate that they instituted a new infrastructure, sort of a new regime that they came up with or device to sort of evolve? And so they evolved on, they of course had this Wilayat or this provincial infrastructure for a long time, which was meant to initially compete with Al-Qaeda and try and pull resources away from Al-Qaeda's branches, which are often called affiliates. 
And that structure, what, what's interesting about your reporting is it suggests to me that ISIS is evolving its infrastructure, its, its, its whole way of doing business, its hierarchy, in order decentralizing, however you want to put it, in order to try and keep going with the punches, basically keep rolling and keep operations going. Yeah, exactly so. And uh, I mean, the genesis is 2017 to 2019, and that period when ISIL knew that it was losing and knew that it was going to be militarily defeated in Syria and had time to think about what that would mean. So it, it's it's not really post-Baghdadi. Baghdadi was still in gotcha. charge of the time. And this, this, this is a concept that he, that he was also involved in uh, in, in uh, giving birth to. But it's it, yes, it's, it's, it's evolved since then, inevitably, I think, involved under under his successor and under the circumstances of, uh, of, of, of trying to make sense of the post-Baghuz um, sort of uh, challenge. Now, just to follow up on his successor, um, is it your sense too then that this office, al-Sadiq, and the comparable office in East Africa are reporting up the chain to Abu Ibrahim al-Qureshi, the successor to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi? Um, so it is, part of a, it is part of an internal infrastructure, in other words. Absolutely, as far as they're able to. I mean, we, we mustn't ever exaggerate. We must never underestimate the the difficulty that they have in communication. You know, it is difficult. Uh, communication is a risk in itself. Um, they still do it, and they still move money. And we know that we know that uh, we know that the the instructions of ISIL Corps do reach these uh, these uh, regional groupings and the affiliates. Um, but yes, it is it is it is it is it is, it is a, an intentional structure that's been created. But as you said. There is also a certain amount of delegation of authority and decentralization that goes sure. with it. And that's simply inevitable. You, if, if you imagine attempting to operate close command and control in these sure. circumstances, then the, the, uh, the leader would just end up being, uh, being uh, tracked down and killed. Yeah, so I've always, on the decentralization point, there's, I think there's a confusion in terms in the field where decentralization sometimes is used to imply a lack of cohesion which I don't think is right. I think, you know, any modern international organization is going to have to have decentralization. You know, any modern, look at any Western company, for example, there has to be decentralization of, of command uh, to make decisions on a local basis. And, and then you basically, the central command of the company or the corporate headquarters then reviews the performance of these individual, you know, decentralized units to try and see if they need to be made changes or updates, that sort of thing. And it, it's similar to that. I mean, you know, you don't expect... You know, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi before he was killed or a successor, Abu Ibrahim, to to be deciding on what truck to target on a day to day basis over in, you know, West Africa or East Africa or Afghanistan or anywhere else. But in terms of saying strategic policymaking and weighing on some decisions, we have seen quite a bit of evidence through the years. that They do do that. Um, and sometimes and sometimes more than that. Sometimes they get get down the details. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Tom. I mean, that, that's you're right. There is there is no contradiction there. And certainly ISIL is quite cohesive. In its uh, in its messaging and in its policy, uh, and it's, it's striking that that ISIL uh, core has uh, intervened in uh, changing some of the leaders of some of the affiliates, even since the death of Baghdadi. So there is a, there's still a, there's still a certain amount of command and control, but they've just had to they've had to loosen the reins a little bit, and they've had to uh, ease off on uh, on uh, communication. No, that entirely makes sense. I, Follow-up question there too. I know I noticed in this report and previous reports, um, you guys have discussed how uh, Shahab al-Muhajir, the leader of ISIS Horasan, um, basically there's evidence or indications that he possibly was a member of the Haqqani network before joining and defecting the ISIS ranks. It sort of goes to your previous point about how there's some fluidity here of these groups and how guys can move back and forth at times. Um, and then I know there was one theory that was put forward that basically ISIS Horasan at some times was acting 
there's different versions of it acting in some way in concert with the Akanis, you know, to execute large scale attacks or possibly as a cutout for the Akanis at times. It's sort of murky. I mean, I know there's, there's a lot of ambiguity there. I was wondering if you had any updates on how you guys see that relationship now between somebody like uh, Shahab al-Muhajir and his former companions in, in the Akani network, you know, what that relationship is, you know, how do you think that's all working these days? Yeah, I think, I think you use the word murky and it's a good word for this. Um, it, is, it isn't uh, very clear to us. And it's important to say also that not all member states uh, agree with each other about it either. Um, so in other words, you get, you get quite different accounts of this depending on who you're talking to, which makes, makes our job of triangulation more difficult in this particular case than it usually is. Um, I think you know, one of the things that most people accept is that there's a fair amount of fluidity between people. You know, you've got an awful lot of people who are sort of terrorist technicians, really, and uh, available to, uh, to, for hire. You know, they, they'll, they'll, they'll work for whoever pays them in some cases. Um, I think there certainly are people who go back and forth uh, between the Kani network and, uh, and uh, ISIL Khorasan. Um, and uh, then the, quest, the question arises of how far is that uh, a sort of a conscious and directed policy of ISIL Khorasan, excuse me, of the Haqqani network. And, and that we, we cannot be clear on. We just, we just, we just, we're just not sure about that. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, we were monitoring attacks in Kabul, for example, in particular, and very early on, Bill and I were talking about how, you know, this, these were, you know, the Haqqani's played a key role in the Kabul attack network with other Al-Qaeda you know, parts of Al-Qaeda and others, and you can see there's a lot of evidence along those lines. And then all of a sudden, ISIS is able to execute some of these same types of attacks in the same types of places. And it did raise the question whether or not they there was a conscious decision, as you say, to facilitate ISIS doing this against targets that they didn't want to claim responsibility for hitting, or if it was a matter of poaching that they had basically poached from the Akhanis and others ISIS had in order to do this, or if there was some other sort of uh, in-between, some sort of facilitation agreement in between that, or facilitators, as you say, doing some sort of work in between those two competing paradigms for understanding it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. And I mean, we, uh, we, 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 we did uh, uh, point out the possibility of the, uh, you know, the, of, of more uh, collaboration uh, in our 11th report, but uh, in this latest report, the 12th report, we haven't been able to uh, develop that or to uh, establish any more certainty about it. That makes sense. Bill, you have any other questions? Just one quick, uh, yeah. and. How do you assess attacks, high-profile high attacks that are uh, executed in places like Kabul um, where no one takes credit for them? Attacks where, you know, we all know the Islamic State would claim credit for the most mundane attack, even if there were no, no casualties. They're very, uh, they're very eager to, to show their presence. And, and it attacks in a mode that we're familiar with, right? Attacks that... It, Haqqani network or the, or the tal other Taliban groups are known to conduct. Um, do, does that not give more credence to the um, to the theory that there's collusion between the Taliban and the Islamic State or more specifically Haqqani and Islamic State in certain instances? Yeah, I mean, uh, let's 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 take that in also in two parts, because it's, it's, it's worth just touching also on the separate issue. Uh, or somewhat separate issue of uh, targeted assassinations because uh, we, we refer to that in the report yes. and we conclude we conclude that uh, well we, we, we offer we offer the member state view that uh, that uh, maybe 85 percent of these attacks carried out by the Taliban um, and that's yeah, that's interesting because those are those are those are attacks that they don't claim um, but which are 
clearly designed to undermine the morale of the government, the morale of civil society, the, the willingness of uh, ordinary Afghans to work with the government or to work in areas like journalism where, you know, they're, they're likely to be, you know, there's evidence that they're likely to be targeted. So that's an important point, you know, and that, that I think is indicative of the sort of the Taliban approach. They're perfectly, perfectly happy to do this uh, and not to claim things because it's convenient not to claim them and to leave the sort of the room for doubt that it might be somebody else doing it. Um, so, I mean, I think that's worth mentioning because it plays into the other point. And your other point, which is, uh, you know, the main point you were making, which is about the, um, the sort of, uh, you know, larger attacks, if you like, um, uh, where, uh, and I think it would consistent with what Tom was just saying as well, where you might say that that looks as if it, it it's some aspects of the attack bear the signature of the Haqqani network or something or seem to be along the lines of those sort of, those sort of tactics that, uh, or the techniques that you would expect uh, the Haqqani network to be capable of. Um, yeah, I mean, is that is that sufficient evidence to say that there is institutional collusion between the Haqqani network and ISIL Khorasan? Um, I, I think, you know, as we've said in the 12th report, that's something on which member states do not agree uh, with each other. But if you go back to the fact that there are people going back and forth, uh, that there will be times when an attack is, um, is just in the interests of both groups because it, it undermines security, particularly in Kabul. Uh, it undermines the morale of the government. It undermines the functioning of the government, distracts government resource uh, and prevents the government from doing uh, what it might otherwise be doing. If you're in a situation in a multi sided conflict, complex multi-sided conflict like this, and, uh, and, and both of those two groups benefit from an attack. Uh, one of them benefits from claiming it, the other benefits from not being held responsible for it. Um, I think you can draw your own conclusion. No, that makes sense. And that, that shows that, again, speaks to the complexity in teasing all this out and figuring out exactly what's going on in some of these theaters. Um, I want to thank you. Uh, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add, Edmund, to our podcast here for listeners. Anything else you want to say about the work you guys are doing at all, or if there's anything else you want to share with listeners? I promised you we were going to get you out of here in a much uh, in a much more timely fashion than we did last time when we held you up, and you were very gracious about it. But I I kept to a tight script this time to get you out of here. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, I think the only thing I would add, Tom, and it goes back to where we left one one little exchange with Bill, and and that was. I, 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 don't, I, I do want to emphasize that, that, that uh, I and the monitoring team uh, do not share that level of um, skepticism about the prospects for peace in, uh, in Afghanistan. You know, our job is to highlight the reality on the ground, and that reality is very challenging, and the behavior of the Taliban is very challenging. But that's not to say that it's hopeless. Um, I think that the uh, 1988 committee, the sanctions regime, work of the monitoring team has a, a role to play in creating the conditions where the Taliban recognize that they do need to negotiate to some degree. I think we've had this conversation before about just how strong is the Taliban militarily. I, I don't think that they have uh, an easy option simply to uh, overrun Afghanistan by force. Um, you know, they're, they're very, as I said earlier, they're very good at contesting space. Uh, and of course, as you said, um, they may well do a much better job of uh, dominating or controlling space uh, uh, if, they, if, they're, if they're facing a weakened uh, Afghan government. 
but that's not to say that it's a cost-free exercise for them to contemplate uh, simply, uh, simply fighting to the, to the bitter end uh, if there's an opportunity for them to achieve some of their goals through negotiation. And it is important, I think, that uh, the international community continues to uh, work with them and also put pressure on them to negotiate. Edmund, I, I greatly appreciate that and, and your impartiality and all the work you do. Um, I do hope I'm wrong about this and that something could be could you know, some good could come of it. Um, and thank you for all the work that you and, and your team does. And we look forward to all your reports in the future. Yeah, and I'll just add that you can you can leave the ske- extreme skepticism to the two of us. We're yes, yes, that's our job. That's our job. So, in any event, uh, Edmund Fitton Brown, thank you for joining us on the podcast uh, this week. We really appreciate it. Uh, just for our listeners, a reminder: he's the coordinator of the United Nations Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team. They cover ISIS, Al Qaeda, the Taliban, and affiliated groups. Thank you again, Edmund. It's been our pleasure to have you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Bill. Great pleasure, and looking forward to the next time. Take care. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. By the way, Bill, I've got to copy that part. I always, when we're doing these recordings, I'm always looking for that language to, to copy and paste like every day of these podcasts. Just so, pre-record it, lay it down, yeah, and we're we'll be good. Lay it down, just do it over and over again. All right. Well, thanks again, everybody. Bye.